It's Thursday, January 18th, 2018, and you're listening to episode 471 of Fear the Boot, a show about tabletop role-playing games and a little bit more. Running time for this episode is one hour and two minutes. Welcome to Fear the Boot. My name is Dan. This is Brodor. This is Wayne. And my name's Chad. All right, so we're going to lead off with two thank yous. Three. Three. Okay. Oh, at least it's not apologies. <laughs> oh, <you're> sorry. <laughs> Five. <laughs> it's been a long time since we've had a Fear the Boot apology that was sincere. And we are never, ever going to let yeah, you forget that. That was like the whole first year of Fear the Boot was me apologizing for the prior episode. So it was like, you, you could just, I don't know if you even needed to listen to the first episode. Because you just started the second episode and hear what we were apologizing for from the first episode, and there's your recap. Right. And now I'm here all the time. Right. I think at one point far you apologized for apologizing. Yes, yes, that happened. I want to thank Sergeant Dan Krensky, who was just in town, and he dropped off a bunch of really cool Fear the Boot shirts for the hosts. And I want to also give a shout out to the people that made them. It is a company that makes uh, these shirts. And the company is called Mumswear, and I'm going to link this in the show notes. From what I understand, it's a bunch of ex-Marines who open up a place. It's a cafe press, sort of a, I don't know, I don't know exactly how. Only they yell at you? Yes, yes. Tell you to do push-ups? And make you feel very small. But they're building you up. Precisely. For a better shirt. Exactly. (laughs) Every shirt comes one size too small, so you feel insignificant. But then as you'd work out, you start to right. feel swole because yep. you can flex and the shirt rips. That's right. That, that's, this is their business model. <laughs> no, I, just, I just want a commercial with Arlie Ermey turning into the Hulk. <laughs> so I will put a link to that in the show notes. I want to thank Sergeant Dan for getting these. And I want to thank the folks over at Mumswear for making these shirts. Maybe we'll wear them on Fear the Con one day or something so you guys can see them. So, all right, Brodor, go ahead. I know you're not apologizing, so who are we thanking? <laughs> no, I wanted I wanted to thank Mark Larson again because a large box of brand new Crown Royal bags showed up to my house. And so we Fear the Boot has Crown Royal bags until the cows come home. Now, what pissed me off is that he has nicer <laughs> handwriting than I do. Inside what? the box, there's a handwritten note. It says, fear the boot. May these crown royal bags be everything you need them to be. My prayers go out to all. God bless, Mark Larson. Look at his handwriting. Look how beautiful that is. I'm going to rub his handwriting against the microphone so you can all see it. (laughs) It's beautiful. So it's really nice. There's something I didn't know about Brodor. For anyone who's not listening to the actual play, you should be. ap.feartheboot.com. Or it's on iTunes or YouTube or all kinds of places. But... There was something I didn't know about Brodor until the actual play, because obviously we talk, and I hear the sloppy filth that comes out of his mouth. <laughs> out, of, out of his sloppy, filthy mouth. But I have never... Everyone's confused. Which one's his butthole? Because there's <laughs> just coming out. But I had never seen his writing before until we do the actual play, and all of a sudden I look at his character sheet and his game notes, I mean, I'm serious. At some point, I'm going to take one of these relatively simple tools out there. I'm going to scan your notes, and I'm going to see which of the letters I can isolate. And I'm going to make a font out of your handwriting. 
because it's ridiculous. It's like your hand is an IBM Selectric. <laughs> yeah, comparing your handwriting to this handwriting, you still win. Really? Uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I thought I'm it was very good. I'm going to have to agree. Now, don't get me wrong. Mark does have some outstanding handwriting. He does. Okay, I'm... Yes. Yes. All right, so he, he is like a farmer. He is outstanding in his field. But... <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is really, really fucking old. Yeah. Well, I was like, I was like I that's... I, I, that's such a bad. That's such a dad joke. Carla's pregnant. I don't know what happened, but that's. That. But Rodor, you do still win. All right, because for example, he wrote "need" here, and the two E's are different, and they don't have perfect kerning. The top kerning. The, the tops of the E's touch each other. You would never allow that to happen. It's <laughs> <laughs> my whole little area at the game table. There's just an eraser everywhere yeah. <laughs> because I can't abide the letters being bad. Yeah, uh, and then your font has its own entry <laughs> in the DSM. <laughs> and then lastly, I was manning the. I guess that's that's not politically correct. I was working the registration booth for Geekway Mini over the weekend. And some guy comes up to me and he gives me a look. And I was like, oh, what did I do wrong? And then he's like, are I'm you? I'm sorry. I'm so he's, sorry. And then he points to his ear and I was like, I, I don't sign. And <laughs> he's like, he, he, none of this happened. I'm making all that up. <laughs> but, but he looked at me, he's like, are you Brodor? And I was like, I am Brodor. <laughs> so it turns out this guy, Andrew Martin's from Illinois, and he's a fan of the show. And I told him that I would you did know, give him slap like, your filthy mouth. No, he uh, didn't. He did not. He was quite encouraging of my filth. Wow. And, <laughs> okay, that, that's a lie, too. <laughs> <laughs> but he was very complimentary of the show. And I told him, you know, thank you very much on behalf of everybody and that I would give him a shout out. Well, nice. cool. Well, I'm glad he stopped by and he came up with something nice to say about you. That shows a great deal of social grace. Yeah. And more creativity than any of us have. Yeah, a lot of imagination. I'm sure he's an awesome GM. Because <laughs> his ability to bullshit on the fly is just... That's to be. It's like a farmer. <laughs> All right, so Brodor... Off the rails. I love this new crop of jokes we have. They are a bit corny. Mm -hmm. So, Brodor, when we first had you on the show... Because, see, there's something that we do. I don't know if I should even tell the secret or not, but I already started, so now I have to. Which is that when we are trying out new hosts, we typically come up with a BS topic to have them on for so that we can kind of, you know, put it off like it's an interview. And and sometimes it really is just an interview. Yeah, yeah, because I was just thinking, well, wait a minute. There's going to be a bunch of people who are like, well, I was on their show once. Yeah. Aww. Sometimes, <laughs> no, no. That, yeah. All those people are just normal interviews. Totally. Because we really do have genuine just interviews. But whenever we're thinking about asking somebody to join the show, right. we'll come up with an interview top and be like, you know, this is a way where we can have them on, do it under the auspices of an interview, see how they work out, and if they pan out, then we'll ask them back. So when we had you on the first time around, you talked to us, and it was a one recording split into two parts, because it was a two-hour show, about the behind-the-scenes running a game shop. And there was a lot of people, myself included, who either didn't appreciate the amount that went into that, or even some people said, you know, I thought this was going to be a really tedious and boring set of episodes 
but these were actually some of the best things you guys have ever put out there that, you know, it's a really great set of shows that, you know, there's just a fascinating topic that nobody really thinks about. And so right now you are in a somewhat unique position because you resigned from the fantasy shop. Was it two years ago? There. Yeah. Just over two years. Okay. So just over two years ago, which offended me personally because (laughs) your happiness and career be damned. My, my in to your game shop, you know, got taken away and you know, you can just walk in, right? No, not without Brodor there. <laughs> to, hold your, to hold your hand and guide And you. I can't upset his employees anymore. <laughs> They'll just throw you out. Yeah, and you can't name drop. I can't. Yeah. Na- yeah and, I, and I can't put. <laughs> name drop. I can't put poop all over his office. Yeah, that's also true. Because <laughs> I went into his office and took a deck of poo that was sitting mm. next to his computer and started playing 52 card pickups. So there was <laughs> 50 poo pickups. Yeah, so there was poo all over his there's, office. There's a Spanish language version of that game called Caca. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next, I guess it'd be La Caca. <laughs> I don't know. All right. But two years later, there's a shop that has, if I'm not mistaken, an online presence, but no real local storefront is that correct so he does have a local storefront but it is not it is not a retail location in the traditional sense it is mostly ding and dent yeah that is the that is ding and dent and then of course it's for in-store pickups so miniature market does quite a bit of of sales online um and what's their website like miniature miniature market.com okay yeah i'll link that in the show notes if anyone cares but they've probably heard of it. It's pretty big. Yeah, they're one of the bigger people in the industry in terms of online sales. So their current brick and mortar location is ding and dent. You know, basically a pallet of stuff will come in. It'll get checked in by the receiving team. And then they'll notice, hey, these three or four, you know, these three or four cases, you know, somebody ran a forklift through them and some of it's dinged up, and so we'll process it, look at it, determine what kind of discount, and then it goes on the shelf in the retail location. I love it. Incredible discounts. Up to 80% off sometimes of $100 games. Yeah, and it's and it's nuts, too. Like, I, I picked up before I started work, because my first day literally was today, but I picked up a game that I pulled off the 50% shelf, and I was like, where's O? Oh. I mean, I had to I had to search yeah. for the damage. That's how it is with appliances, too, because when Carl and I got our first house, we went to a Sears ding and dent store and and like we got a fridge. I mean, seriously, something like 25 percent of the price. Brand new fridge still had the warranty, everything. And the dent was on the back of I believe it was the right side, which mind you, once you slide it into its little alcove Mm -hmm. you can't see that anyway i mean it's it's behind a wall and it's like that's it that's all that's wrong with this thing and so far i mean for a book yeah i mean the the cover's a little scratched i mean i don't care it's the content inside i don't go for resale i mean it's well a lot a lot of it is board games board games are very very big right now and a lot of the sales are board games so the majority of the ding and dent product on the shelves are board games, so it's generally damage done to the exterior, 
right? Damage done to the actual box of the board game. But then the other thing they do is you can order online. And if you want to save the cost of shipping, you go to the retail location and pick up your order. So you say, you know, you walk in and I'm John Smith and I have an order for John Smith. They grab your box, they ring you up and you're good to go. Can I order a ding and den online? Like say, Hey, I want a ding and den to Arkham Horror. Can you and they just like this? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, can you guys just go ahead and take a brand new copy of Arkham Horror, slap it a few times with a hammer, and then I'll come in and buy it 50% off? No. <laughs> you guys should explore that. <laughs> I won't even demand royalties off this. No. This is a fantastic opportunity. Nobody, nobody is doing this. <laughs> be cutting edge so <laughs> any which way cutting an edge off the bottom line yeah. I, I won't i won't bore the audience with the whole story but essentially steve the owner of miniature market gave me a call and said hey i'm getting ready to open a retail location because manufacturers and publishers in the industry have been talking to steve about steve's not a gamer and they, which is weird i want you to pause right there how the hell did a guy who's not a gamer get into doing this specific because it's not like he's Amazon where he sells everything. He only sells game products. So, and he would tell the story much better than I will, but essentially well, you're fired. Get him in here. He, <laughs> yeah, I think under the auspice of an interview, yeah. can, can we interview Steve? <laughs> I don't know. What's his speaking voice like? <laughs> it's pretty good. So any which way, um, he started out doing sports collectibles, sports cards, things of that nature, uh, and he was working for a company. So jump that, from that to magic that sold jump. that sold online, and he ended up moving to the St. Louis area. His girlfriend was coming here for school, and he said, "You know what? I'm going to go there." And t- this was 12 years ago, and he said, "You know everything that I learned from the previous company that I worked for, I can replicate that business model, and if I'm going to sell product online." what would be a good product to sell. And he started doing his research and decided that gaming would be the avenue that he wanted to explore. And so now he's got, you know, a large warehouse in Afton that he owns in this basically south of St. Louis city for those of you not in the area, but he's got for all a, your stalkers. It's 10 minutes from my house. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's, he's got a huge warehouse, a, you know, a good number of employees, I think damn near 50 people uh, working inside the warehouse, but essentially because he's not a gamer that has a certain stigma in the industry and publishers want him to open a proper brick and mortar store so he can proselytize the hobby so he can actually be an ambassador for the industry. Yeah. Cause if you go to a website, generally speaking, you're not window shopping. I mean, you might see a suggested item. If a website even has that feature, you might see a suggested item that you or impulse clearance. or clearance that you impulse buy, but Usually when you go on Amazon, you know what it is you're after. You know, you type that in a search bar and you grab it. And, and that doesn't grow the industry. Exactly. It doesn't bring anyone As here. you put it, it doesn't proselytize. You can't walk in and see people playing the board games and be like, wow, that looks cool. Maybe I should get a copy of that for myself and my friends. Exactly. So the store manager, Stu, he's not much of a gamer himself. And so... They realize that if we're going to do this, we need somebody who has some kind of industry knowledge or industry experience. And so they contacted me through a mutual friend, this guy, Marshall, and basically said, hey, we understand that you're available and interested in getting back into the industry. Come in and talk. 
So I did three different interviews with them essentially over the course of probably four or five hours of talking and, you know, came to an agreement that it would, that would work out. And so now sometime in February, probably around the second or third week of February, we're looking at opening a 7,200 square foot location. Okay. You know, it's interesting because previously when we've talked about some of the failings of comic book and game shops, one of the big things I pointed out were that the people running them were hobbyists. They were fans and they weren't business people and they yeah, didn't know how like to do they were retail. Fans first business people. Second, yeah. they were fans first, second, third and business person wasn't even on there. And this is completely the opposite. These are business people that now realize that they're missing part of that equation. Exactly right. Well, and what's interesting is that, you know, he doesn't, Steve doesn't do anything in half measures. And so if he's like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it right. So we're going to have approximately 4,000 square feet of retail space, 2,200 square feet of actual game room. And then the rest of it will be back room, office storage, things of that nature. Is there any kind of, I don't know, can you me put this in perspective? Because you say 4,000 square feet. Obviously, I can invent numbers in my head. You know, I'd say, And that's just one room of Dan's house. You yeah. can't put that in perspective. <laughs> right, precisely. I mean, 4,000 square that's feet. Nothing. I'm like, that, that's as far as we've got the lanterns into the foyer. Right. And, and that's so, the servant's kitchen. And, and he never goes there. It's, it's, it's big. Right. So, yeah, what is 4,000 square feet? Can so, you compare it to anything? Boy, it's, it's, it's difficult for me to describe. But, okay, let's say the restaurant that we were in tonight okay so we were in which which if you walked into which which and you look at this you know, look at the sandwich joint look at the front counter right so if you just say the front counter there was just a wall there at that front counter right and then just that rectangle you know wall off where the bathrooms are wall off where the actual kitchen is that would probably be somewhere in the neighborhood of 13 1400 square feet Okay, so to put this in perspective for anyone that's that's listening has no idea what which which is, it's it's a sandwich shop we just went to, and it's like a build your own sandwich place, but it's a little bit more detailed than like a subway or something is. It's about the size, like you know those little hole in the wall restaurants where it's like a counter and four tables. It's bigger than that. Okay, so it, this is not like the size of the average standalone like Applebee's or Chili's or something like that. But so this is a, a strip mall type restaurant, but it's of a substantial size where like you have the tables going across the front and then more tables going down the side of the counter. And so it, it's I don't know, it's kind of hard to explain without showing, but I, I think that's a pretty good descriptor. Yeah. So, OK, so you're saying the retail space would be about twice to three times the size of the not back area yeah. part of that restaurant. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Closer to the three times, but okay. So I mean, gracious to so talk in that kind of size, you are now kind of in the ballpark range of something like a standalone Applebee's yeah, it's, or it's, something. It's like big. That. It's a big facility. You guys have a unique opportunity here because he's going from a predominantly or effectively entirely online operation that just has a customer service desk that's barely a storefront. So you guys have the opportunity to build a brick and mortar, what they more properly call a click and mortar, because he's not getting rid of the website of that no. company from the ground up. All right. 
So given all the things that you have learned over your years as retail within the game industry, all of your Brodurian knowledge, you're now going into this with what you said, 7,200 square feet total of space. What does this look like? I mean, let's just say I hand you 7,200 square feet and say, build the correct game store. What does that look like? That is where it gets very interesting. Because first and foremost, if you're going to open a game store and you're going to compete with online, the thing that you're going to do, the the competitive advantage that you have as a brick and mortar store that the internet will never be able to compete with is the sense of community. You have a place for the tribe to gather, right? So you absolutely positively need to have game space. And that's difficult for people to wrap their heads around because they realize that I'm paying for every square foot and I want to monetize each square foot of the location. A table with five people sitting around it does not generate income because you're not selling products. Exactly. However, you have to look at it in a more abstract fashion. It does generate revenue. Mm -hmm. You just can't point to specific dollars and say those dollars came from here. But there's a great book called Why We Buy by uh, Paco Underhill. And one of the things that he talks about in the book is the more time. That's my next Deadlands character. (laughs) (laughs) So the more time you spend in a place, the more money you are likely to spend in that place. So a promo area is advantageous for you for that reason alone, because you have bodies, you have butts in seats spending time in the location who are going to want to buy. They might buy something big. Oftentimes it's just peripherals, whether it's things from your vending machines or card sleeves or what have you. Dice. Dice or yeah, dice are, I mean, they're a huge, huge peripheral. I mean, they're a big money maker for the industry, but then you have to have, so you've got a place where people want to hang out. So they're generally spending money, but more importantly, you have a place for people to actually gather and share the love of the hobby. So then you use that space to run events, to do tournaments, to do promotions, to do demonstrations, etc. So the first thing that I would want to do is I would want to figure out what is the amount of space that I want to have retail versus promo area. I can say as a customer, when I used to do the board game meetup group and when I would do Pathfinder Society, things like that. I would develop a sense of appreciation for that space being available, and I would be more likely to buy from the shop that was hosting that than I would to go online. I'm willing to pay a little bit more to support something that's providing me a value. And that's the that's the big advantage that you have as a brick-and-mortar retailer against the internet competitor. There's a great store in Kansas City called Tabletop. And in Phil's shop, and I don't think he has the sign in his current location. Maybe he does. But in his old location, he had a big wall, a demarcation between his promo area and his retail space. And he had pay here, play here, right? Because he was very much in favor of you're my customer. You're important to me. You're a patron. You're purchasing product. I want this space to be available for you. But people who just bought online, he would say, you know, look, I I appreciate that you want to save money. That's great. But this space is for my customers. So, you know, he was pretty restrictive about who he let use the product space. Wouldn't there kind of be a self-defeating aspect to that? Because let's say I buy a base book online. I come into your store and I'm playing it. I bought it on Amazon. 
you know it, I know it, we all know it, right? I didn't buy it here. But if I'm in there, that still serves a demo purpose. That still promotes the hobby. Right. I still might buy add-ons like extra dice or figs or maps or well, then supplement you, but, books. But now you're a customer. Well, but I'm not the customer when I first sat down, right? Sure. I might be the customer, yeah. or maybe I never even buy anything at all, but there's people coming through who've never seen this game before. Let's say it's not D&D. Let's say it's Blades in the Dark or something like that. I, I don't know if Blades in the Dark even has a physical copy. Or, it does. It does. Okay, so it does have physical books. So this is a game, you know, that I bought online, but they wouldn't even know existed, except they watched me play it. And there's absolutely advantage to that, and I think as an advertising opportunity and something that really does act as an ambassador for the hobby, that's great. But at some point, you have to be careful because the people that are shopping online, I've seen it happen in other game stores where someone will come in, they'll be shopping on the internet, and then they'll start encouraging other people to shop online for all these great prices and these great deals. So they start to poison the well. Exactly, exactly right. And that's why I'm so excited about this opportunity because the thing that we are going to do is we're going to have a brick-and-mortar store that we're going to have the same prices online as we do in our retail location. Generally, people just can't afford to do that. And I'm not getting into the math and why well, we can't and, afford it. And let that. me ask you a question there. Does that mean you're bringing your prices down to Amazon or you're bringing them up to brick and mortar? Everything in the retail location will be priced the same way as it is online. So if game X is $100 MSRP yeah. and miniature market sells it for 80 online, I sell it for 80 in store. Okay, so you are moving toward the online prices, not taking the web store up to the correct. brick and mortar. Okay. Yeah, correct. Yeah, because on the internet, if you're going to compete online, the primary area where you compete is with price. Right. If you're going to compete with brick and mortar, the primary place that brick and mortar is going to compete with one another is going to be service, selection, events, etc. But most brick-and-mortar places don't discount because it's not in their business model to do so. It's not profitable to do so. But because we have the buying power from what we're doing online and the amount of online sales, we can actually afford to sell at discount prices. And from your guys' perspective, a sale gets rung up. The only difference is you have a guy pick up the item and drop it in a box and put a shipping label on it, or a guy in the same location, probably maybe even the same guy, turns around and hands it to a customer. Well, so that's the big thing, having a retail background. The There are overheads to running a store that cause stores to have that problem. Already being able to have a business be solvent with just the online sales, that is a huge starting point. Well, and it's also got to help that your receiving location, you know, your warehouse is already local. I mean, I don't know what your plans are, and I don't know that I want to ask these questions because I don't want to request proprietary information but you know if i'm just thinking this through in my head if the main warehouse for his sales or some point of it you know he's already got product coming into afton or wherever Mm -hmm. and if you can just put that into the back of a van and drive it up to depair which is where the new location is going to be which for anyone who's not locals about 10 minutes from afton then you've already got a chunk of the distribution chain cover you know i mean it's it's already done you're not having to set up a receiving area and back to you know set up a new chain of distribution right and and once again i won't ask you to comment on that too much detail because 
financials I don't think are appropriate to discuss here. Right. Chad hit on a big thing, though. The the same price means the same POS backend system. That's, when you don't have to code different prices for online versus in-store, yeah, it's the same that inventory. simplifies everything from a asset management standpoint. Well, and you can't, you can't have a business of the same name selling the same product at two different prices. You just, you yet just, a lot of places do. Yeah. You, but you can't be successful in the amount of blowback that those places must get from the consumer. Oh, I mean, if, if I may give you a news example, target. Yeah. The Walmart tar- and Toys R Us. I've seen it at both. Yeah. Target.com is not the same company as target. It is the same brand. But Target.com and the Target stores are not run by the same company. And you can go onto Target.com and, once again, it's ostensibly just the website so, extension of the brick-and-mortar store. So it blew me away. I, I had to pick up I, – I'm redoing the screens on my windows. Hmm. And you get rolls of screening that you can put in. And so I've got a bunch of windows. And I'm like, okay, well, I know the brand and type that I want because there's not actually a whole lot of companies that make the screening, right? Well, everybody sells it. Well, so what's the best price? And so I'm online. I'm like, you know, Home Depot, Lowe's, Target, whatever. And I find Walmart. Yeah, I'm not really a Walmart shopper, but it is significantly like a couple of dollars cheaper than everywhere else. I'm like, really? I'm looking at this on my phone. It says available in your store, which is store near me. I'm like, oh, well, I'll just pop on down there. And then I go right down there and I'm looking at the product on the shelf and it is two or three dollars more than what they're selling than what they told me it was. And I look at it and I'm like, well, wait a minute. It's it's saying it's this price, but the tag on the shelf says that price, two different prices. And it's saying that it's available in this store. And it's sure enough it is because I'm looking right at it. And so I start, you know, kind of clicking around. Like you said, it's two different almost yeah. companies. And I could, if I wanted to get it at this cheaper price, order it as I'm standing in front of the product, order it on my phone for in-store pickup, and come back in two days and retrieve my product that I have my hand literally on. Yeah, I did that. It's just like it doesn't. It doesn't necessarily have to even be two days. It was in this case. In that case, yeah. yeah but one time around Christmas, we did that. We went into the store. We saw the price online. We talked to them. It's like, will you price match with, your, mm. with yourself? Answer was no. Okay, I buy this right now. You might as well set it in the pack. I'll be back in an hour. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Best Buy does that sometimes. They'll have a web special, but the stores will pull their own inventory. Yeah. Saw so you on BestBuy.com. Find a web only special. They will pull the exact same inventory out of back and sell it to you at a different price from the customer service desk than if you pulled it off the shelf yourself. It is insane. So, exactly. <laughs> well, let me ask you a question, brother, because you talked about the guy who separated his store pretty heavily between buy and play. Right. How much division do you intend to have? Do you want visibility between the buy and play areas? So, do you want to have them more so, isolated? So, yes, on all counts. So, one of the things, and and I've, I was doing a lot of research online today, um, looking at other stores, looking at competitors, you know, across the country for you know ideas, things that we like, things that we don't like, et cetera. But 
any which way. One of the things that I personally do not care for and do not think has a professional presentation is that when you are gaming in the middle of your store, so you walk into a store and it's a square or a rectangle with a bunch of the tables in the middle and then no actual proper fixtures except for a a, a counter for your cash register or your point of sale system and your products all on shelves along the walls or on slot wall along the walls and people game in the middle of the shop. I don't think that that has a professional presentation. Plus, as a retailer, it's a security nightmare. It's a hassle for your consumers to be walking around and trying to shop while games are going on. I go in to buy something and I feel like I'm intruding. If I feel like that, I'll just turn around and leave. I can think of two shops like that just off the top of my head that I've never bought anything from that I've gone in. And it's like the retail presence is small compared to all of the space where everybody's gaming. And... Like Chad said, it feels kind of like you're intruding on what they're doing. And I had that same thought of what's to stop somebody from going over when someone's not looking, grab a deck of cards off of the shelf, go back to the table. I brought this from home. Right. But it also has to be visible. So your game space, unless you're doing a very specific single table dedicated demo or highlighting a specific product you really should have those two things separate, but it needs to be visible because the consumer needs to know one, you have a place to gather and play games. And two, as you were pointing out earlier, it's a wonderful advertising opportunity for the hobby for people to be exposed to things that they wouldn't necessarily be exposed to. So it fills old location, his new location is even better. And this, again, this is tabletop in Kansas city. But if you walk up to his store from the parking lot, you can see that he has a clear wall dividing his game room and his actual retail space. But in front of both, it's big windows in this particular strip mall. So on the left-hand side, you can see from the front tables all the way to the back of the room, this beautiful, large, well-lit promo area with his huge tabletop logo on the back wall. So you look in, you see people playing games, and you can see on that back wall, very, very distinct, his actual logo for his company. Now, am I correct that this is not going to be a game and comic shop? This is just a pure game shop? Correct. You know, one thing I'm kind of curious about with that is in terms of the flow of a game store. And I don't, I'm sure there's an art or science to this. For example, in grocery stores, and Chad knows this one pretty well. Unfortunately. The the Department of Agriculture, I believe it is, has worked out the psychology and the math and and what they call the Euler rooting and such of how people buy groceries. There's a reason why you walk through produce. There's a reason why. It's colorful and it smells nice. Yeah. And it's also very expensive. And there's a reason why dairy, which is one of the most purchased it's items. and it smells not that great sometimes. But it's you need it, right? You Everybody need wants it, so milk. you have to go all the way back, back to the store. Back you corner. must pass everything. And yeah. one of the things that's usually right next to is the bakery, which also smells mm-hmm. really nice and gets you hungry and all that stuff. And, you know, the point is that your path through a grocery store is a science. Now, what I see that in action, go to an Ikea. They wind you around a maze, and the average time a customer spends in an Ikea is three hours. Yeah, this this is why... Sounds so horrible. This is why (laughs) I I don't go to Ikea with anybody. (laughs) And now, it seems to be that in my life, that's almost exclusively women. 
Now, I know there are men who go to Ikea, but I'm just saying in my life, I don't go to Ikea with it, with any woman because ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So my question is this. One of the things that I've noticed in a lot of the combination game and comic shops, which is the majority of such shops that I've been in, they tend to do them together, is they use those racks of comic books as dividers within the store. Mm -hmm. They become ergonomic dividers. They become, I mean, almost like walls because of the fact that they're so tall and, and they're so, you know, they block your view, whatever. And so they become a way of dividing the store and controlling the flow of traffic through the floor. Now, you guys won't have those. How, I mean, how, if at all, do you intend to handle the, the flow of traffic in the store? So we will... Or, have, or do you even care? I mean, is it not like grocery stores where you don't give a So, I mean, yes, I, yes, I absolutely do care. Okay. In fact, when I was working for the fantasy shop... first day, so he still cares. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one, of the, one, of the, one of the things that we did for the fantasy shop, I moved to the St. Charles location. This is many, many years ago. Long story short... We took the new comic releases and we put new comics. One of the first things I did was I put new comic releases all the way at the back of the store yep. so that the consumer had to walk by what we would call the two to fifth week shelf or the non-new releases. They'd have to walk by all of the graphic novels and trade paperbacks. They'd have to walk by all of the back issues of the older issues that have been come off the two to fifth week shelf. They had to go buy everything because I know they want the new comics, and if they're going to go, if they're going to make a beeline right toward eggs and milk, that's fine, but they've got to pass everything else along the way. And that is so common with comic book yeah. shops. Yeah, you just you need you need to do that. So the layout of the store is very important. Now, we're going to have some custom-built slat wall fixtures that essentially will be large, tall, so, on casters. What is your milk? Because, I mean, if you're selling games... I mean, yes, there are new releases, but games are obviously on a much less frenetic cycle than comic books are. I mean, it's not like a, a game comes out this week, and unless you're a Gen Con, you know, it's not like, well, it came out this week and I got to grab it this week and it's not well, going to be hand, there next week. You come in, you get your comic book, it costs however much comic books cost, and then boom, you're done. And then the cycle continues. But a board game, it's like a hundred bucks. So the new hot game comes out, the milk. It's in the back, but it isn't coming out every week. But then again, people aren't buying it every week. They want to get their friend to buy it. Then they'll try it. Right, they'll so, watch a video so, on it. And so it, the so, cycle is still yeah, there. So, longer. Well, is that what it, you use is just the most common products? So the D&D main book and Catan and Carcassonne are going to be in the back. So I mean, how, what is your milk? The short answer is, is yes, that. Things that are going to be what we would call the evergreen products, the things that people are looking for that are going to sell from from now and for a very long time are going to be further in the back of the location. The ding and dents, the stuff that people, those deals that people are looking for, that they come through with great regularity. I mean, at the current location, we have some people that come in every other day to see what new ding dent product is on the shelf. That's something that we're known for. That's an attraction that we'll put that toward the back of the store, you know, so you have to pass through all of the various sections, but 
The good thing about what we're doing in terms of our fixtures and making them modular that we'll be able to rearrange things. So, for example, milk's where milk is going to be. That's where the coolers are. That's where that's where they've been set up. That's where the wiring is, et cetera. For us, we can actually, because it changes from week to week, month to month, what's going to be the popular thing, what games are hot, what games are not, what manufacturers or publishers are hot, which ones are not, we can rearrange the stores. It's not like the product spoils, right? I don't have big, expensive refrigeration units, and so I can't move my milk. I can, I can rearrange however I want, which is something that we'll be very cognizant of. The other thing that we'll do that the advantage that the click and mortar store has that particular business model. And I really do think that that model is the future of the industry where people are going to have to do both to some degree to be competitive. But the interesting thing about that model is, is that locally we have a set number of customers that we're exposed to, but nationally, we have many, many more customers that we are exposed to. And if a product is selling well online, but not selling well in the store, I just take it out of the store. I just don't have it. Yeah. If someone comes and asks for it, you still have it in a warehouse somewhere you can get. Yeah. Because there might be, I mean, let's look at something like Fear the Boot itself. Fear the Boot is not a product that has... We are the milk. (laughs) (laughs) That has enough of a following to necessitate a local representation. In other words, we couldn't go on a radio station and draw thousands and thousands of listeners to a show on tabletop role-playing games. But there is enough incidental demand around the nation and around the world to make it more than worth doing. We can pull those kinds of numbers. And in the same way, you might have a book that's a supplement that if you look at a national or international audience, there's sufficient demand to necessitate stocking it in the warehouse, but it's not sufficiently concentrated demand to necessitate having it on shelf space. And so I I certainly do see the distinction there between those two things. I'm assuming the dice will be right by the register. Oh yeah. There's two reasons for that. My guess based on my retail experience, one is the, just the basic impulse buy aspect. Oh yeah. Dice are a low price. They're right there by the register. You don't think about them, you grab them, you add them. The other is it's really easy to steal them. And with miniature gaming, it's a challenge too. Blister packs are pretty easy to pocket as well. And they can be pretty pricey. And they can be very, yeah, exactly right, exactly right. But the other thing is, is that those impulse items, those by the register, if you've got a nice dice display, people just stop and they just want to look. Oh, the, the times that I've bought things from the fantasy shop, as I'm sitting there and they're ringing me out, I mean, even when they're totally efficient, it still takes time, right? Mm. Not a lot of time, but it takes a minute or two. You can say they're slow. He doesn't work there anymore. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> well, I, I would, except they're genuinely not. But that whole time, I'm sitting there staring at these different right. colors and, and glitters and yeah. marbles and whatever of dice. It's all impulse buy. Yeah, and it's just, you know, these baser natures start coming out. You so, always have things that catch people's eye that's cheap. Near the register. So, Broder, do you guys have any plans to integrate the two? And by the two, I mean the brick and mortar versus the website. Say something like, and I'm just making stuff up, but like you come into the store, you buy this much stuff, we give you 10% off at the website. You know, here's a code, use a checkout or something like that. So, or 
Yes. So basically pricing structure will be the same on both. So one of the things that we're going to have to do that, that we're looking at for our business model, because we do online sales and the pricing is identical, that every day we're going to have price adjustments. So there's going to be a handful or more of products in the store that we're going to be dropping pricing on. How are you for- going to do that? Are you going to do the gun with the price sticker on it? Cause you'll have a stack an inch. That's a nightmare. So, so we're going to do custom. We're going to do custom stickers, mm-hmm. right? And obviously dry the, the correct, <laughs> the correct price will be There's allocated. No that would bite them in the ass. Yeah. No, they'll, no. they'll be, they'll, they'll be linked in the system based right. on that particular skew or barcode. Right. Mm-hmm. But then we'll have stickers that we can put on the product that are going to show MSRP and then the miniature market price. Mm-hmm. So you can say, you know, everywhere else it's this price here, it's that price. And then we may have to, you know, remove that sticker and put a new one on, on some particular products, yeah, mm. which will be, which will be, and I don't want to go so far as to say it'll be a hassle, but it'll be, it'll be necessary labor. So I'll go so far as to say that sounds like yeah. a hassle. Well, so why don't you use shelf tags like a grocery store? Because a grocery store doesn't tag every single one of their items. Right. They just have shelf tags that they change out constantly. Because here's another thing about, you know, putting the milk in back. Grocery stores will change their prices as the day moves on. Because they know on some items that people will pay more earlier in the day and pay less later in the day, depending on the demographic that's coming in. They have that analysis up. And so you see people, I mean, certainly prices change. But if you go to a grocery store, you'll see somebody with a big, like, flat book and a sticker sheet, like a little PDA thing, moving price tags around. Broder, when you put this shop together, just imagine... Yeah. Brodor sitting there and there's this gigantic dump truck full of Legos in an empty parking lot. (laughs) And let me, let me be perfectly clear. Let let me be perfectly clear. Steve and Stu are putting the store together. (laughs) I'm just kind of there. (laughs) Well, but I'd assume they're listening to you. Yeah. I mean, I I definitely have influence perspective. I mean, you give them advice and they do the opposite. Well, no, essentially what happened is, is that they, they said, look, we need somebody to do promotions. Run events and nah, I, I can't d- disappoint two women at the same time. <laughs> yes, you could. <laughs> but essentially, they need someone who knows the industry to work with the personnel, the clientele, and, and right, right. events. So, so that's kind of my question is along those lines is what's the thing that you're thinking of that nobody else thinks of? What's the thing that goes into a game store that you think is that big? item, whatever it is, that changes the entire tenor and success of a game store that nobody thinks about. All right. So you walk into a store, comic stores, game stores, gun stores all have a similar problem. They have poor customer service because it's based on a clubhouse model. Right. I love guns. Tons of gatekeeping. Yeah. Yeah. I love guns. So I'm going to open a gun store. So my buddies who love guns can come in and buy guns from me. I love comics. I love games. So I'm going to open a game store and my friends, we can all place orders through distributors and we can get product at a discount and we can hang out at our little exclusive clubhouse and not really be a proper business and not be welcoming to people outside our particular clique. 
That's the problem that most comic and game stores run into is you go in and they cannot even be bothered to look up from what they're reading to say hello to you, let alone approach you and try to engage you in some kind of conversation and gauge your interests and try to basically share their love of the hobby with you. That That said, though, that can also be something that can be harnessed too. you build a loyalty to the store when you have those communities built around yeah, it, well, you have customer service is incredibly important. Right. And that's where most shops fail. When you walk in and you're not part of that click and nobody gives you any attention or you even have rudeness. On the other hand, I know I continued going to the same comic shop year after year because I knew the people. Right. And it was when the owner died. That's when I gave up physical and went all digital. So, there are two ways in which this whole exercise reminds me very much of our own exercises through the boot. One is a local physical location with a national or international internet reach. We have the podcast. They have the website. We have the convention. You guys soon will have a large store space. But the other thing that reminds me. have no money. They have lots of money. <laughs> <laughs> We're both stuck with Brodor. <laughs> but the other thing that it reminds me of that, that you're talking, you just talked about right there, though you didn't put it in these words, is how do you build a place that is as inclusive and welcoming as possible without failing to have an identity without failing to have some kind of a distinct culture. You know, when you come to fear the boot, there's a certain type of atmosphere you're getting. There's a certain type of personality you're getting. There's a certain delivery we have. There are commonalities in the way we play games, et cetera, et cetera. You're not coming in to fear the boot and hearing every other gaming podcast, but within that, within those parameters, we try to, at the same time, not to be cliquish, not to be overly opinionated. This is why we don't talk about politics and religion. This is why we try not to mouth off regarding, you know, various subcultures and such. I mean, we might make our except little, furries. Except, I mean, furries and larpers, but whatever. Not Until people. he gets his fursuit. Until I get my <laughs> fursuit, yeah. And I'm LARPing Gnarl at a con. I'm going to be so confused about whether I can make cheap shots of furries anymore. I think Dan is going to be so confused, too. (laughs) Carl is going to be confused the first time it comes into the bedroom. (laughs) But, you know, it's at the same time. You know, you want that game store to have a culture. Because if it has no culture, then the people have nothing to buy into. They have no reason to be there as opposed to anywhere else. But if it is a clubhouse... If it is so insular, so cliquish, so whatever, so impenetrable to an outsider, then nobody new ever comes in. And so it stagnates and it dies uh, as soon as whoever it is runs out of their small business loan. Let me look at this from the perspective of not fantasy shop or not miniature market, but just if I was opening my own store, what would I want to see? And I don't mean to use all of sort of the new buzzwords, but you absolutely have to be inclusive. Something that all gamers have for 
one degree or another is gamertude. You have this gamer attitude of I have to correct other people when they're making mistakes and when they're wrong and I have to because I have to prove my rightness. And oftentimes it comes in the form of I like this game and my opinion is correct, right? Because it ties into a identity. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. And so what happens is, is that as gamers, oftentimes, if you shit on something that I really like, I'm feeling personally attacked. I didn't write the game. I didn't do the art layout. I didn't do any of the design, but I like it and you're shitting on it. And therefore you're shitting on me. Yeah. We've right? talked about that effect a lot. It not just gaming. That's just a geek thing in general. Right. So you have to, one, you can't do that. Right. You can't you can't go crapping on things to the public in the store. You can't start start talking about how this thing is just stupid and I hate it. And I don't I can't understand why it ever got produced. You can't do that. You have to recognize that these products exist for a reason. And even if it's something that you don't particularly care for, there is a fan base for that particular product. Right. So, I mean, I'm not going to go on a tear about my little pony on the show because there we have listeners who are into my little pony and that's their thing. And I'm not going to rag on them about it. I have right. (laughs) You're not running the story, (laughs) but the same, the same thing is true for the same thing is true for a shop. And that's the, that's the, that's the thing that you really, as a business person, you have to recognize. It doesn't matter how I feel about my little pony and the, my little pony role-playing game. If I can sell 30 copies in the first month, of the My Little Pony role-playing game, then that My Little Pony role-playing game has a prominent display in my store, and I'm telling people, hey, did you know that we have the My Little Pony role-playing <laughs> game? All right, I've got to find out how deep this goes. What if it's like a GURPS My Little Pony written by Kevin Symbietta? Is this, are we finally in the 20 it, bucks, this 20 bucks neighborhood? It, is it, does it sell? Well, you know, actually, jokes aside, is there ever, at least in that industry, a point where you can't put something front and center. Not because it's it's nasty or dirty, but because it drives people, the product itself and people's opinion of it drives people away and attracts another kind of person. Yeah, sure. And as a businessman, you're like, oh, it changes, well, you're saying it changes the culture. Something that's device, very divisive. Yeah, and then when the fad is over, the fans of that thing evaporate and yeah, your customers are gone. Actually, is great, that a thing? A great example of this would be during the CCG boom of the late 90s, early 2000s, a lot of the game stores that we used to frequent suddenly started de-stocking, de-shelving out with the verb there, whatever it is, the role-playing games and the board games in favor of more and more and more card game support. There, there was a time where you couldn't, it was hard to find role-playing games because it was all CCGs. Yeah. That's where the money was. You wanted to go in and buy anything but Magic. Or any of the tin thousand clones yeah you were sol yeah and in in when they brought back the role-playing games by that point some of those shops the magic fad had it's not over but i mean it had waned significantly and those shops died because they had alienated you know that fan base so that magic, is an interesting question magic went to walmart cheaper yeah <laughs> well the interesting thing about that and this is tangential but 
the industry did that too. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't just game stores. I think in that scenario, what happened from the industry perspective is the industry saw that CCGs were the next thing. And so they started making CCGs. I mean, hell, the, the hobby that we're talking about, role playing games, came from wargaming. And then, you know, Gygax and Arneson make D&D. And then D&D becomes a thing. And then everybody else is like, wow, these role-playing games, that's really where the money's at. We should make a role-playing game. So all these board game companies started making role-playing games and becoming role-playing game companies. And then board games kind of went by the wayside. And then magic hits and everybody's like, wow, CCGs are the thing. And so I think that, you know, it's 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 a chicken and an egg thing because the industry moved towards CCGs. And so shops move towards CCGs because that's what was selling. Now, I, I I understand where you're coming from is that there are some shops that did not weather that particular bubble. And when the bubble burst, there weren't around anymore. Um, and that's why I think product diversification is really, really important. But also, if you're a business and you have a limited amount of resources and limited budget, you really want to maximize that dollar. And so if I'm looking at all of the products that are available in the market and I think, well, I might sell this, but I can definitely sell that. I'm going to stock far more heavily in the things that I'm, I think are a more sure bet. Well, and there's one thing about stocking, but you mentioned the whole, have you seen this? My Little Pony. Right. One thing I look for in a store, in particularly a game store, is I want to be able to talk to the people that work there. If I'm a regular and I get to know them, I want to be able to talk to them about the games. So I go over, here's a clearance area. Have you played any of these? What are they like? What are your recommendations? I wouldn't do that if I just walked into a store, of course. But if I've been there multiple times and I know the people... One thing I really appreciated about when I used to regularly go into game shops, when you were running Fantasy Shop, for example, different people had different things that were their thing. So I would ask the person behind the register that I'm used to talking to, you know, hey, have you played deck building the deck building game? (laughs) I joke because I actually bought that game. Yeah, it's a real thing. Yeah. (laughs) The person the There's a like, game called Deck Building, the Deck Building game. Yes. Yeah, it's it a, deck a deck building, building game, game about, about building decks. Yep. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah. go on. And so from, I, from Greater Than Games. Yeah. Yep, I own a copy of it. So I asked the person behind the counter that one, this being the perfect example. The guy's like, oh, I've never played it, but I think she has. And he yells over to the other employee. She comes over, oh, yeah, I played it. This is what it's like. That's a trust level. If I would have walked in and they tried to sell me on My Little Pony... I'm going to lose the trust level with that person. Right. You see, you, you have to develop. So, and here's the, here's the secret. Okay. If you're out there and you want to open a game store, right? If, if you're listening to this, the thing that you, the, the most important thing that you have to understand is that as the game store, you're not selling product. You're selling the hobby. You're selling the industry. You're selling the passion for the escapism. That product is going to sell itself. When we open up the miniature market superstore, people are going to come in and they're going to see that we have great stock levels and that we have great prices and it could be successful just based on that. But set all that aside, you're opening a small 1000 square foot brick and mortar game store, right? 
People are going to come to you because they're into the hobby. People are going to give you money for product, not because it's a specific product, but because they have a respect for you. They appreciate what it is that you do. They appreciate your store. They appreciate that you're a bona fide member of the tribe. And so they're going to say, I want to vote with my dollars here in this location, right? Because they can get anything that you're going to sell. They can get online for cheaper. Anything that they're going to special order from you, they could get sent to their home cheaper and faster. What you're doing is you're building that relationship as a member of the community. And some people that will matter for more than others. Chad, I know a lot of you would prefer getting cheaper typically. Right. This is a big thing for me. I frequently shop at places where I know the workers and I know the people that own them. And I'm willing to give pay more for a relationship and a good shopping experience versus buying online cheaper. But not everyone is like that. Right. If I walk into a store and Dan and Shan own that store, right? And I'm in there at Christian Eos Furniture Store. Yeah. Right. That sells gaming. So... (laughs) the sideline yeah they they know if i walk in and they see me every week they know that they're going to get my 20 dollars. we have a, <laughs> we're going to get dollars yeah. you better believe it but for them they know they know they're going to get my money they don't have to put a product in my hand and 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 push it on me all they have to do is create an environment and a sense of belonging where i'm comfortable giving them my money right so whether i buy this 20 dollar book or those two $10 supplements, they're still getting my 20 bucks and they know that. And so they have an investment in that relationship where they can say, Hey, Mike, we know we're going to get your $20 either way. You're better off buying this thing than that thing because of these reasons. Like this is a better product for those reasons. I mean, you make your own decision, but we're here for you. We know the hobby. We know your interests. And that's what that's the advice that we want to give you as the retailer. So, Brodor, I'm really looking forward to seeing the shop open, to seeing how it develops and to seeing what kinds of things you I don't know what you come back to us with over time. But certainly best of luck to you and to all the other people that are involved in that. Uh, as for you guys listening if you're in the St. Louis area, give it till about February and then check this place out. I'm sure we'll be able to give you an address once the place opens. It's 13378 Manchester Road. 13378 Manchester Road. But don't go there right now. Yeah, don't go yeah, there right now. In, in Edwards Plaza. Yeah, yeah. and pair. So I actually looked for it while I was driving by. But oh, nice. I didn't. I don't like you. Yeah. I just, oh, well, <laughs> we all know. I just never go out that way. But anywho, thank you guys for tuning in. Have a great week, great games. Check the show notes. You know the routine. And we will catch you next time. See ya. This has been a production of Fear the Boot, copyright 2018. Listeners are free to use this episode in any non-commercial endeavor so long as credit is provided to feartheboot.com. You can find previous episodes and other resources at feartheboot.com. Fear the Boot is also a member of the RPG Academy Network of Shows. You can find other great shows in this network at therpgacademy.com slash network.